0: Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits.
1: I'm your host, Ken Gagney, for the Indie Cider podcast, where I play indie games then interview the developers. This week I'm speaking with Zyba Scott of Pop Cannibal, which recently published the Wii U version of Girls Like Robots. This is a tile-based puzzle game that originally came out for iOS and Flash in 2012. You can play the Flash version on the Adult Swim website. There's a link in the show notes to this podcast. Girls Like Robots is almost a sort of seating chart simulator where you are given various facial tiles, like the face of a girl or a robot or a nerd, and you have to place them a square-based grid pattern in ways that tiles that like each other are near each other and tiles that don't like each other are not near each other. For example, girls like robots. Nerds like girls. Girls do not like nerds. So there is a fine balancing act. The layout of each stage changes. The number of tiles you get for each stage changes. And the backdrop and environment changes quite a bit. There's often some frenetic activity going on. There's a sort of a narrative thread where these tiles represent students at a school, and they go on various activities and field trips. This doesn't actually affect the gameplay, but what you see going on around the grid is very often very intriguing and very strange. The soundtrack is also not typical for a game like this, but it is fantastic. It's a string band. The piecemeal string band is the group that provide the soundtrack to this game. It is not what you would expect for a puzzle game, but I, being a Contra Dancer, really dig it, and you'll hear a lot more about that in this episode of the podcast. Unique on the Wii U version of the game is you can use the GamePad's camera to actually create a tile with your face on it and you can modify the other tiles using various templates like adding hats or mustaches or changing the skin color to affect how they look. I first saw this game at the first annual Boston Festival of Indie Games back in 2012 when I interviewed the creator, Zyva Scott, for Computer World magazine. This episode of IndieCider is the first time I've spoken with him in a formal capacity in the three years since, although we have crossed paths at numerous various Boston-based gaming events such as Game Loop, an annual event in August for video game developers. You can find Girls Like Robots at popcannibal.com and you can find this podcast at indiesider.net where you can link to the, the iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn editions of the show as well as the YouTube edition which has gameplay footage of the Wii U game paired with the interview you are about to hear. You're also welcome to leave a review of the podcast in iTunes which will help other people to find it and follow me on Twitter at GameBits where I debate which indie games to play next. In the meantime, here's the interview. Today I'm speaking with the creator of Girls Like Robots and the founder of Pop Cannibal, Mr. Ziba Scott. Hello, Zyba. Hello. How are you this evening?
0: I am well. How are you?
1: Excellent. Congratulations on the Wii U release of your 2012 iOS game, Girls (laughs) Like Robots.
0: Thank you very much. Only uh, three years later.
1: (laughs) So obviously this game has been around for a while. It's seen a couple of different permutations and platforms. What is it like to work on various iterations of the same game over such a prolonged period?
0: It becomes... uh... More of sort of a technical exercise and a marketing one than a game design one at that point when the game's design is, is pretty much settled. Though so we did do some new stuff with the Wii U. Um unfortunately I love technical exercises. It's sort of I think it uh it's been a nice tour through Unity and its capabilities. You know, Unity advertises all this crass cross-platform capabilities, so uh, I've tested it out.
1: So this isn't an issue of you just wishing this thing would die so you could move on. You actually enjoy <laughs> the different, uh, the variations of challenges and difficulties that it, the various stages of its evolution present.
0: Well, you know, three years after the original publishing and, you know, a full year earlier that developing it, so, you know, I have to make a commitment to being positive about it and, and not getting in that spot where I'm, I'm angry at it. Um, I mean, at this point, yeah, I'm very ready to move on, but, uh, you know, there was a lot of... Uh, forced but also sincere optimism about yes let's let's do girls like robots once again
1: because i imagine each version gives you the opportunity to iterate upon it and you know make it into the game you want it to be but for some reason we're not previously able to
0: let's just think, so you know we started with ios um and then actually started developing the the first version was actually um well it's pc and then it went to android was the first full version but i never released android but i developed on it because it was just easier than ios uh then ios um did a flash version pc mac linux um and uh an unreleased blackberry version and all those were really pretty much the same in terms of design i didn't change too much just a very few tweaks um until we got to the wii u one and that's where we really uh for what i think is probably the finale went nuts and, and added to a lot of stuff oh sorry windows phone microsoft actually paid me to add a significant new features to a windows phone version
1: wow that's impressive
0: yeah, they have this app campus program. I don't know if it's still running, but they um were sort of, uh, you apply and say what you're going to do, and they give sort of these lump sums to developers. It was just in the early early days of the Windows Phone, where they're just trying to get, get good stuff on there.
1: So why, for the last version of Girls Like Robots, did you choose Wii U and not, say, Xbox One or PS4?
0: Just in terms of the uh, audience, Nintendo skews younger, at least anecdotally, as far as I can tell. Um, younger, more brightly colored. You know, the, the Wii U in particular was not getting the uh, latest... Call of Duty releases and whatnot. So I'm not actually, um, spending my time advertising to that crowd as much. I'm more going for a crowd that's already accepted the bright colors and and cheerful oddities of Nintendo into their lives. And that's much more where Girls Like Robots fits. Plus, I had a uh, publisher in Japan, uh, who actually did the porting and some more work for the Wii U version, uh, for the Japanese release.
1: That's right. You went with the organization Unity Japan?
0: Yeah. So actually, they, uh, I uh, started of with Kakahashi, I'm probably butchering the name. Um, uh, Kakahashi Games contacted me about doing a Japanese translation of the Steam version, which we did first, released in Japan. And uh, based on how uh, how critically well that did, we signed up and did a Wii U together.
1: Why did you choose to go with a publisher instead of DIY and self-publishing?
0: I mean, I've certainly done both with Girls Like Robots. I self-published, I self-published Wii U in, in North America, um, and I self-published Steam and... Um, Windows Phone, um, but the initial launch was uh, Adult Swim published for I- with iOS, and uh, I really enjoyed working with them. They have a good reputation. They have good people who you know, made some gentle design nudges, and then just got a lot of attention for the game, which allowed me to focus on making that game, making other games, and doing it better. So, uh, especially in the Japanese market, what am I going to do? Self-publish in Japan? I don't think Nintendo would I, communicate me with you know American Indies for the most part. Um, so that was just a real rare opportunity to have a, an inside team in Japan doing stuff for me.
1: So it's mostly the marketing and, in some cases, the distribution that having a publisher really helps with.
0: Yeah. Uh, Union in Japan, though, they did take on a bigger role. They wanted to make this edition special. They're very enthusiastic. And they actually added some really significant features to the release, um, local multiplayer competitive mode and uh, the ability to... Take pictures with the Wii U gamepad of your face or anybody's faces and use those to replace all the faces in the game.
1: So those aren't features you added? Unity Japan did that?
0: Unity Japan added those two things. Well, I gave them a list of things. that they said well, if you could add things, what would you do? So these are these are the things I cut or you know, didn't even dream to put in scope and uh they did them.
1: How did it feel handing over the code to your game to a third party?
0: <laughs> uh that's weird, because you know I've been the tyrant to that code base for years i used am i used versioning but uh, it's always just been me committing um it was tough especially you know i, I it, it, that many years into it i just figured i was passing off a torch in a way i didn't expect to be coming back to it um i did a bit for the north american wii U release but uh uh they've done things that i don't know and i haven't looked at and I may never. I don't know. We'll see.
1: So does that mean that these features, especially for example the two player mode, which is not as dependent on the Wii U gamepad hardware, will not necessarily be propagating back to the iOS or Steam versions?
0: Yeah, we haven't updated iOS in a while. I don't know how much of a call there is for it. It's a really great game as it first came out. These are sort of extras. It's sort of you know as I put out on a new platform. The question for real fans is why would I buy again? Why would I play again? Why should I be excited? Um, if you're a first time player coming to it, honestly, any version is. Going to be great. It's a much bigger game than it seems, so I wouldn't worry about getting the short end of the stick in any way. So I don't see a whole lot of reason to to backport some of the new features.
1: What do you mean? It's a bigger game than it seems.
0: The game doesn't, in a lot of ways, the game doesn't telegraph what it is very well from its material and parts. You know, Luigi and I. Luigi's the artist. We wanted to make something weird and interesting and different, um, and in doing so, we made something that you can't look at it at a glance and really size it up as well as some more uh formula following games. Uh this game has uh, you know, six to eight hours of of uh puzzles and story in it. One complaint we've never gotten about the game, or never more than I don't know, never to my memory is that it's too short.
1: You mentioned the artist Luigi. Didn't he also do the Counting Kingdom?
0: Oh yeah, Luigi's done a lot of games in Boston.
1: Oh excellent, because I featured the Counting Kingdom on I believe it was episode number five of this podcast more right. than a year ago. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Luigi did all the art for Counting Kingdom with Jenna Hofstein and Little Worlds Interactive. He uh, did Jungle Rumble with, uh, for Disco Pixel and Trevor Stricker. Uh, he did uh, Elegy for Dead World, which I worked on with him and uh, Dejabon. Uh, he did some art for Eric Asmussen82apps' as uh, Pwn. And I'm probably forgetting some others. And of course, what new games that we're working on now.
1: Uh, the show notes for this podcast will include a link to his portfolio found at superluigiland.net. It is uh, quite extensive, and it also explains uh, why I was so enraptured by the art for Girls Like Robots, because I loved The Counting Kingdom as well. Although, technically, your game predates The Counting Kingdom.
0: I scooped up Luigi just after he'd wandered out of undergrad, found him him hanging out in a hallway, and and, uh, latched onto him.
1: You were the one who rose him up from out of the the gutter.
0: (laughs) I'm the one who convinced him not to get a real job, I guess.
1: (laughs) And I'm sure he's been hating you ever since.
0: (laughs) It's complex relationship status complicated
1: <laughs> to say the least <laughs> so you've had a lot of different experiences publishing this either by yourself or through others for various platforms on the steam version you went through Greenlight. what was that experience like
0: that was trying it was an adventure i had been shooting to go on steam i've been planning for it that was the first platform i was going to do i got distracted by adult swim it was a very good distraction but so I had my eye on there forever and there was no such thing as green light. And it was really just kind of about knowing somebody to ask. And I'd felt like I'd finally met enough people in the world to know somebody to ask just about the time they invented green light and everything shifted. They, they made the messaging pretty clear to all their old indie friends that, uh, you don't get on by, you know, knowing a friend of a friend, you, you get on through green light now. So please do this. So that was sort of jarring. Um, and then, I don't know what your experiences or other listeners are with, with the audience of Greenlight. I think it's a really different audience of people who go through Greenlight and vote than people who actually will end up buying or playing your game on Steam. A lot of the first reactions to it, even though initially this game was designed for Steam, but came out on iOS was get your flash looking mobile garbage off of our PC store it was sort of the feeling that I was getting from the comments in Greenlight.
1: That's not the most welcoming.
0: Yeah, it was just, I mean, there was a lot of good stuff. Um, yeah, and just it, it felt a lot of sort of this um, childish, flippant, uh, dismissive of something because it didn't have zombies or guns. You know, I love zombies or guns. So that's not what this game was. Uh, but there seemed to be this sentiment that uh, uh, it's sort of this anti quirky indie sentiment. I, you know, maybe I'm just, uh, uh, it's sour grapes because my game wasn't telegraphing. But, but the reason it makes me think that uh, it, it's not all just me and my game is that when we actually got through Greenlight 384 days later, the reviews of the game on Steam are Excellent. It's very positive, uh, You know, well over 100 reviews, great ratings. So there's this disconnect between Greenlight and Steam that uh, can be a real hurdle for getting certain types of games through.
1: In order to review a game on Steam, do you have to have purchased it and linked it to your Steam account?
0: Uh, yeah, I think you have to have played for a bit, too.
1: So the people who were downvoting your game and didn't want your Flash garbage in their store probably didn't then go buy the game to review it.
0: Right. Yes. So I guess uh, I'm not sure what the indicator here is, but it's just that Greenlight green light allows a public display of, I don't know, hatred, dismissiveness um, that isn't necessarily going to match really sort of the market value that your game has, the market and critical value that your game will actually have on that actual platform when it's released.
1: So how do they correct that imbalance or police that community? Is there any better way to go about this that you can think of?
0: Well, what they've done since then is just dramatically lower the bar for what it takes to get through green light. It's, you know, as far as being a gauntlet of things you have to hurdle through, they just cut off the last nine-tenths, and now every month they're putting through as many as, I don't know, went through in the first year. I mean, they've really just cranked up the volume, so that solves the part where you feel maybe you're unjustly stuck in green light. Like, I'll bet we would have gotten through really quickly now, but it doesn't change. Um, I mean, the whole point of green light to get on to Steam via Merit and prove that you had this market value, at least my understanding. Well, a lot of the... Point of green light was to take load off of the, uh, the uh, uh, style makers at in, in Steam, or to make sure they don't have to be choice makers. But I don't know. I don't know if this um, rushing games through green light thing fixed the problem. The green light was trying to fix in the first place
1: but on the bright side you now have that red badge of coverage where you can say i survived 2012 (laughs) era green light
0: right my favorite comment that i always hold is is my memory of that is is someone was just so angry at the game's existence that their comment was something like those robots better be dildos because this game is didlos and they were so angry they couldn't spell dildos right the second time
1: wow that is (laughs) some rage right there impressive Three hundred and eighty-four days, really?
0: Yeah, this it's the it was the thirteenth best-reviewed game iOS game of all 2012. Like, so it was like critically, and I had all these quotes and stuff to go with it, and I had all these reasons for people to believe in it. Being a well a huge critical success on mobile did nothing in terms of impressions on on Greenlight.
1: And there were probably several hundred, if not thousands, of games released in 2012. So to, to be the 13th is saying a lot.
0: It's like above, right above, like Angry Birds Star, above Bird Field Runners Two, actually.
1: Wow, really? Yeah, that's pretty good. And and that is as ranked in the iOS store.
0: No, that's uh, Metacritic. Oh, okay, so, you know, take that with a grain of Metacritic salt.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. I do I do see that list here now. They have, I think, Bastion is number one. Oregon Trail Director's Cut is on here. Yeah, and there you are, 13th. Nice. There also
0: may be some luck. I think there may be some ties, and I just alphabetically hit above the others, but I'll take the 13th.
1: Don't question it, man. Don't question <laughs> it. Just be happy with what you got. I have some questions that aren't necessarily unique to the Wii U version, but this is a very intriguing game, and I can't help but wonder. It has a very quirky sense of humor, as evident by some seemingly bizarre contexts and environments. Like, is w- w- what's the game they're playing? It's not volleyball. It's Chicken Bomb?
0: <laughs> chicken Bomb Ball.
1: That's it. Where where does all this come from? I mean, you could have created a puzzle game with the exact same mechanics and none of the, the feel, for example. Like, you didn't have to put faces on these tiles and give them emotions. You could have just created these arbitrary rules for which tiles go with which. And you could have just had a nondescript static backdrop on which this board is set. And instead, you create all these fantastic environments. What was your inspiration to be so, if I may say, outlandish?
0: Thank you. I'll take that. Outlandish, I like it. <laughs> so, the, I mean, the game, I did prototype it initially with numbers, you know, pieces of paper with numbers on them and uh, colors or something like that. Um, and moving to faces was sort of the most obvious and natural abstraction of numbers. Faces and emotions are just a a a memorable, intuitive abstraction built into our, you know, our, our genes, uh, to help us, uh, judge these situations. So that worked really well. Faces on squares. That's a path. Once you've drawn a face on something, a bunch of faces, you've gone down a path where you want to do that. I guess the other compulsion that really pushed it to where is, is wanting to make sense of things. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I have a series of faces and different people coming in and out. It's all these weird scattered lines. So if you're going to play scattered points of information, like here's a, all right, now we add another i don't know a, a, a seal um and it becomes as if you're going to draw do connect to the dots between these lines you're going to end up with this wild thing and um, then imagine looking at this odd shape you've drawn and it's sort of like looking in clouds you, you look up at a cloud and and you can uh, some part of your brain just wants to make it into a dragon or something else and so looking at these faces and abilities we scared it around it, it you look at the shape of it and you're like well i think i can sort of see uh uh a dance coming up in this or I, I see a i see a train ride out of this more concretely you know i brought some of i wrote all the text and and um, i did all the design but a lot of the art i gave luigi this free reign and i just started working with him as a contractor so i didn't really know what he was capable of as we got going i started to learn that i needed to give this guy a a, a good long leash to come up with stuff the uh, chicken bomb ball one in particular um it was originally kickball uh, a bit more boring um i had him draw a kickball field and i thought this is dull so i just uh said uh want a sports field not kickball uh just make up a sport and come back with something um, i think it was like two hours later he sent me this sort of soccer field looking thing with these craters in them with feathers scattered around uh and uh he just he just did it you know this is this you know as a as a Game developer here for you know me hiring a contract artist. That's sort of the best case scenario where I just say, "Hey artist, make a sport," and he comes back an hour later with something I thought was beautiful and slightly—I um, don't know—edgy know, is too much of a word. It's like on the very <laughs> the, the mildest of edginess because you know there's an implication we killed some chickens.
1: And usually, at least in the Zelda games, when you fight the chickens, they fight back. So that's not a great precedent
0: there. Yeah, and then later we go and we we just put f- fuses on chickens and I don't know. It's all it's all implied violence though.
1: So you never got any cease and desist orders from PETA? Uh,
0: no. Uh, that'd be kind of neat. I mean, I've, I mean, I'm all for the ethical treatment of animals, but I also would like to be in the middle of some controversy like that. Sounds kind of cool. No such thing as bad publicity, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got like uh you know a number of family friendly sites. We'll do um reviews uh and they generally you know find it pretty family friendly there actually is a scene in there a little a tiny one but there's a robot who's drinking and they're all underage i don't know if that's clear or not so there is reckless underage drinking but i've still got my um, esrb of i guess uh, 10 10 plus
1: because when i was playing this game i never knew what to expect next i never knew what i was going to see and in that sense it reminded me of another boss and developed game vivian clark oh yeah <laughs> Where when I was playing Vivian Clark, I was just like, "What was the creator thinking? This is fascinating and intriguing, but I have to wonder what sort of mindset produces such a
0: game." <laughs> yeah, Will Briarly used uh, to. That guy's amazing. Um, though Vivian Clark, I believe, has a lot of contributors to it. Uh, that would explain a lot. But you know, he also did a Soda Drinker Pro, which is mostly his in, uh, beautiful insanity.
1: Yes, that is true. So I also have a question about the, um, uh, you mentioned some of the emotions in the game, and obviously the title of the game is Girls Like Robots. Is there any sort of like uh, implied stereotype or sexism there, speaking of controversies?
0: Oh yeah, so and we do get people who are, not too seriously, but a little, you know, like, oh, how can you say that about girls? Or we also have uh, girls don't like nerds. Um, and just even using the word nerds, I mean, that's sort of the, the, the bit of the fun I poke at the nerd stereotype is sort of the sits a little funny with me, but I think that I treated everything pretty sensibly. Uh, there's some reconciliation later in the game. And also, there's so very abstract that the value that I hope that these concepts of people liking and disliking each other brings to the game is really just this mathematical, recognizable value of, uh, that your gut can go ahead and lay out these things that if you're doing with numbers would take you you know, uh, if, if they weren't faces and they weren't feelings, I can't think of any other abstraction. I haven't tried too hard, but I can't think of any other abstraction that would really get you to be able to intuitively say, if I put this here, this is good over here and bad over there. You know, it's If I put this here, oh, they'll be happy. They're not going to be happy. Um, it's using these stereotypes, mild stereotypes, was a great shortcut towards triggering people's memories.
1: Awesome. And one last question, and this is... Perhaps unique to my interest, which is that besides hosting this podcast, I'm also the co chair of a local monthly contra dance. Have you ever been contra dancing?
0: No, no,
1: have you ever heard of it?
0: Yeah, I'm familiar a bit yes,
1: yeah, it's a little bit like square dancing and it has live music and a caller who calls out the moves, and the music is sort of a like a, a folk music very much similar to the piecemeal string band which you have playing in this game, and that again is an element I did not expect. That's not usually the soundtrack I hear coming from a puzzle game. And I understand the piecemeal string band hails from your home state of Michigan. So was there a personal affiliation that connected them to this game?
0: Yes. Two of the three members of the band are my aunt and uncle. (laughs) Really? Yes.
1: (laughs) So a little bit of nepotism
0: there. I was making, started making the game uh, right around the same time. They sent me a copy of their latest album, you know, put it on. And uh, I had one of the very first aside from like I had these mechanics, these bare mechanics, but when I first got that first batch of art from Luigi with the little pink girl, she came very early in the game, and I wanted to make a demo for Boston Indies Demo Night, and so I just I wanted to make an intro for, for it. And it was all it was, was going to be this girl walking into the scene, which is actually how the game ends up starting. And I put on uh, piecemeal's, um, uh Spotted Pony, uh, the Cherokee, why am I blanking on that? I've heard this song 80,000 times. It's the... Uh, Spotted Pony Cherokee Shuffle medley, I believe. I put that on, and it was just the happiest, bounciest thing. Uh, It felt felt like a specific, I don't know, feeling and piece of art that I was putting together. I was creating something a little bit more than the sum of its parts, and that really got me excited. So, string band all the way.
1: If somebody wanted to buy the soundtrack to this game, do they simply buy the piecemeal string band album?
0: That's going to get you about half the soundtrack. So, the album has actually got... I mean, a lot of these old folk tunes are things about, you know, um, uh, uh, coal mining, uh, union strikes and things like that, um, that I had to cut out all these words. And so the albums have was all this beautiful stuff. So you'll hear like what you recognize from the game and then they'll just start singing and have this great bridge and stuff. And so if you, if you go buy a piecemeal album, you're going to get um, a whole lot more. But there are a number of tracks um, because the album had so much singing, I couldn't edit it all out and still get enough stuff. I actually hired a Berkeley student. To create original pieces in the style uh, to go along with the game, so there are some original works just for the game too. Jonathan Hawkins, uh, brilliant—he was an undergraduate at Berkeley at the time—and
1: his work can only be found in *Girls Like Robots*.
0: In *Girls Like Robots*, or the soundtrack was once sold at a expo in Japan. So, if you were there, you might have got a copy.
1: And if I wasn't, I'm SOL.
0: I don't even have a physical print.
1: (laughs) Not even you? No. Wow. Yeah, because I pulled up the Adult Swim Flash version of the game today in a web browser window, and I just kind of forgot about it for a moment. I got distracted. And like after 20 minutes, I realized I'd been listening to just the opening tune on loop and was still digging it after 20 minutes.
0: After five years, or however long it's been, I'm a little, little down on it. But still, uh, the, when I get to the part where actually the rest of the words are, too, that's I guess that's sort of my secret pleasure. Everybody else most, you know... Most people around in games haven't heard the rest of the album, so I get the secret. I hear the songs, and I get to—oh, I should say, I don't know, if you got to the—not the, uh, many people did, so no offense if you didn't. The very last—the uh, the end of the game, did you beat it? Not yet. I have the stats. It's not un- <laughs> It's more unusual to beat it, because like I said, it's a long game. Um, but I actually saved my favorite song on the album to play in its entirety uh, over the credits, and it has uh, full lyrics and everything. So that's the, uh, that's the treat at the end of the game.
1: Oh, excellent. And I was just briefly googling while you were answering that question, and I discovered that this amazing band also played your wedding,
0: yeah, well, yeah, they're of course there that was how is that Googleable?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, you you mentioned it in a steam forum two years ago
0: wow i I apparently just share a lot, yeah, <laughs> yeah no they were um uh of course they were there, and uh uh, we hadn't actually planned live music, um, uh, but I should have known better, I know my knowing my family they uh is, my dad's also uh. Very talented, personal musician, and my then future and brother in law. uh, um, Anyways, music just popped out of the woodworks. Uh, So, really, this, this, the soundtrack to Girls Like Robots is like, just like the rest of the game, really personal and part of my life to me.
1: That's really awesome that you were able to incorporate so many elements of your life into a product that ended up being so successful. That must be very gratifying.
0: Yeah. uh, Makes me, uh, Want to do it again.
1: (laughs) Maybe not this exact game again. (laughs) I think you've done that. But what is next for Pop Cannibal?
0: Well, after Ghost Like Robots, we did Elegy for a Dead World, which was also a lot of personal stuff, and we did it with Deja Bond. That was a lot of fun. Um, And right now, Luigi and I have been working on, for uh, a bit under a year, um, a game about sailing. It's called Make Sail. It's a 3D third-person perspective where you actually find uh, and grab Bits of floating wood and, and debris, and pull it together to make a sailboat that you ride along to more islands, more adventures, and more pieces and parts and power ups.
1: And when can we expect to play that?
0: Oh, that's a good question. It's probably not going to be done for somewhere between six months to a year and a half. But uh, you know, excellent local Boston insiders like yourself may be able to get a copy uh, before the year's out if you if you want to beta test the uh, the magic.
1: Excellent, and if not, I'm sure that our listeners can look forward to seeing it at Boston Fig 2016. That'd be fun. <laughs> it's just around the corner. You'll be here before you know it. It's <laughs> September 2016 at MIT. Ah. Awesome. Well, Zybo, thank you so much for talking to us about Girls Like Robots. It's been fun seeing this game evolve. You were just demoing it when I first met you at Boston Fig 2012, <laughs> and I interviewed you for Computer World. And here we are three years later still talking about it. It's been a great trip.
0: <laughs> Thank you. that has been a great trip. And I look forward to continuing it um, with different topics than Girls Like robots. This has been IndieCider, a Game Bits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net.
1: So why, for the last version of Girls Like Robots, did you choose Wii U and not, say, Xbox One or PS4?
0: Um, lots of reasons. Um, let's see. Blanking. God, there must have been some reason.